This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. We also welcome our now five-time celebrity guest scorer from Westport Studios and our own personal Baba Yaga, Rob Conlon. Hey, gents. Thanks for having me back. Fifth time's the charm, man. I cannot believe we've done this five times already. Like, just great stuff and always talking about one of my favorites. Yeah, it's been about, I think, a year since you were last on. Oddly enough, yes. This is the longest span, I think, since I've seen you guys. Uh, but, you know, we talk in, in the off-season, off if you will. <laughs> yeah, and you're coming up for another couple of episodes this summer for some projects that we have going on, so it won't be quite as long in between. But, Dad, he is now the second member of the Five Timers Club. What has he won? He has won the coveted... Gmote hat. Oh my gosh, that's awesome. It's going to be a hat with the Gmote logo on it. Um, I'm going to order a bunch of them and we'll have the five timers group, which will have some sort of a designation, but I'm going to order a bunch of others to give out people to wear around for promotion and we'll see. But my wife is holding out and since she's a 10 timer, she wants some sort of like... She's not a 10 timer yet. I know. Getting close, though. I think she's got eight. Yeah, she wants a sweatshirt. And I'm like, well, uh, she she gave me an office jacket with the office logo for my birthday. (laughs) So I'm thinking maybe a G-Mote sweatshirt for her birthday. I think that the best use for number 10 has to be the clapperboards. Because you can almost just, like, paint the logo over the top of a clapperboard. And then on the back, like, personalize it. Yeah, I'm going to go in and see the uh, person who does all of our logo stuff. See about t-shirts and hats and everything and see how much, what kind of a deal I can cut. I have to make a slight correction. Again, I have forgotten that my little sister is also a member of the Five Timers Club. So you are, unfortunately, the third member in the Five Timers Club. Hey, you know what? Bronze medal's not bad, man. Bronze medal's not bad. You're on the podium. So high honors there, although we did get a threat to your potential record about two weeks ago from a friend of ours or a mutual friend of ours. Walt wants to surpass you in in a amount of time. Yep. All right. Well, I have to keep showing up. There are plenty of Denzel movies that we have yet to cover that I'm sure he'd be looking forward to. I I have a feeling he's going to suggest Man on Fire here coming up. Why don't you have us both on for that? Because I love that movie, too. (laughs) i'll have to consider it honestly four person podcasts are so ridiculous to edit but i'm already making an exception for when you're going to be on for one of these that it's going to be my birthday episode in july Mm -hmm. so and that's just because why the hell not you know screw it but uh let's get into tonight's movie for our 151st episode, we discussed the first film in the defining action film franchise of the last decade, John Wick from 2014, directed by Chad Stahelski, written by Derek Kolstad, starring Keanu Reeves, Michael Nyquist as Vigo Tarasov, 
Alfie Allen as Iosef Tarasov, Adrian Palicki as Miss Perkins, Bridget Moynihan as Helen Wick, Dean Winters as Avi, Ian McShane as Winston Scott, John Leguizamo as Aurelio, Willem Dafoe, Willem Dafoe as Marcus, and Lance Reddick as Sharon. Recognition for this movie, John Wick was released on October 24th, 2014. It grossed roughly $86 million against an estimated budget of $20 to $30 million. John Wick earned a mostly positive reception upon release, attaining praise for the action sequences, direction, visual style, pacing, and the performance of the cast, especially Keanu Reeves as John Wick. John Wick currently holds an 86% on Rotten Tomatoes, a 68 score on Metacritic, and a 3.8 out of 5 on Letterboxd. The franchise has been said to revive the career of Keanu Reeves and gone on to be a video game, as well as having three sequels with John Wick 4 being released on March 24th, 2023. Rob, I believe you have said in the past that this is your favorite movie. Why? That is, it's my number one, and there's there's a couple reasons. Number one, Keanu Reeves is an amazing human being. That is just, if you interact with him as a fan of his work or as a fan of any of his movies, number one, he is so gracious. He is so wholesome. So that's a really strong lead off there. I love the cast of characters. I think that Vigo is a tremendously memorable and competent villain. I think that the universe that it makes of this underground society of, you know, we are all professional assassins and we walk around in broad daylight in New York City. Like, that's absolutely wild. And then last but not least, I really think that the the gunplay. The gunplay, I think, is the one thing that really makes this movie the quintessential modern action movie because the gunplay is so accurate. There are no bottomless magazines. There are no reloadless things like that. John Wick, and I even have an infographic of it pulled up so I can I can reference it here. It's incredible of how accurate this is. And of course, the training that Keanu Reeves goes through in order to be, number one, safe with these devices, but number two, incredibly accurate and, of course, portray it well on screen. So this is probably the biggest action film franchise of the last decade or so. And I can't really think of anything else that at least was contained within that decade. The only other competitive one I could say is the Fast and Furious franchise, but that had well pre-existed this. That's going back to, I think, 2001 was the first one. I think so, too. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) But Keanu Reeves has now been a part of multiple action film franchises. And I would say, if you're thinking of action figures, or at least the action movie hero, if you ignore Steven Seagal and Claude Van Damme, then... You've got Stallone, Schwarzenegger, Vin Diesel, and maybe Tom Cruise as a part of the last maybe 40 years of the action film. Bruce Willis would also kind of fall into that with the Die Hard films. But is there anybody that, I guess, has been a part of four distinct moments in action film history as Keanu with Point Break, Speed, The Matrix, and John Wick? I think, and I am going to strongly argue for this, he is the defining action figure of my lifetime from 1990 through today. I completely agree because unless you start to step into the realm of superheroes, 
there's it's a completely different genre in that case where it is an action movie, but it's superpowers, you know. You're forgetting one. Taken. Mm. Oh, I guess Liam Neeson. Yeah, but, Liam Neeson. And he's redefined the role, which is I'm an old guy, but I'm still badass. Which has allowed Bob Odenkirk to come in and start doing these now too. He did one as kind of a joke movie. Well, but he's apparently got two more that he's signed on for. Really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Liam Neeson has done a bunch of action films, but I don't think there's been really multiple franchises. And I know that a lot of people, given that the success of Top Gun Maverick and the Mission Impossible films, and we have Dead Reckoning later on this year, would say that Tom Cruise is probably the biggest action hero of you know, the last decade or so, I think there is an argument to be made for Vin Diesel because he had the Triple X series. He tried to do Chronicle <laughs> Critic and, you know, the Fast franchise. But for me, you can't redefine yourself this many times and not be the action hero king. Well, it's he transcends more. I mean, Vin Diesel is very one element. For that matter, The Rock I mean, The Rock is always The Rock, no matter what he does. It would not be difficult for Keanu Reeves to just transfer over and do something completely different. And I I was racking my brain. I could not remember. There was a movie that was out where he's playing himself in it, and he's making a joke of the fact that he's buying everybody in the restaurant dinner and drinks, and he's like, oh, this is just one residual check from one of my John Wick films. I believe the film was a Netflix film and it was like Always Be My Maybe or something. And Ali Wong was the co-star and it was kind of like a romantic comedy type thing. But he kind of, yeah, it was very tongue in cheek. Yes, she's dating him and he's like, well, how do I compete with him? And he just keeps, you know, piling it on. I think at one point in time, he opens up his trunk and he's got like all these checks just thrown loosely in there. (laughs) That's amazing. I know. I thought it was hilarious watching it. I I mean, it was the best tongue-in-cheek thing. The only one I liked better was Schwarzenegger in The Last Action Hero, because I thought that movie was way underappreciated. Schwarzenegger making fun of himself. Uh, That's a throwback, though, Dan. What's that, 1990, 1991, Last Action Hero? Probably. That's unbelievable. It's F. Murray Abraham, the kid who's the, hey, he's Amadeus, or he's going to kill Amadeus. Watch out for him. <laughs> 1993. Three. Same year as Jurassic Park. Okay, I remember that. Yeah. Another John McTiernan film. Yeah, you did bring up one that I had forgotten, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, but I don't think at any one time that any one of his single movies really stood out because, I mean, part of his claim to fame was Fast Five, which is a Vin Diesel movie. So if you're basically treading off of somebody other's tailpipe, you know, I, I don't know if you can really hold the action hero king title. No, and I mean, what's some of your other big movies? Jumanji? Which is somewhat of a comedy. Jungle Cruise, another comedy. <laughs> what was it, Skyscraper? Rampage? Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh, that's right. What was the film he did with Gal Gadot? Oh, Red Notice on Netflix? Yes. That was terrible. Yes, it was. But you know damn well they're going to make a bunch of them because... Because it's Netflix. Other than paying The Rock and her... And Ryan Reynolds. And Ryan Reynolds. 
that was the cost because otherwise it's just them. I mean, it wasn't like they paid for much of a script. Well, that's Netflix. <laughs> oh, well. So, Dad, what is your relationship to this movie? I knew about it. I watched Aaron Rodgers become John Wick. Uh, I'd never had seen bits and pieces of them, and that was it. So you were a Wick virgin? So this was the first time watching the entire film. Really? Huh. Yeah. The part that, you know, I always heard how violent they were, but the violence in these is almost like watching uh, the Roadrunner and Coyote because it's so over the top. And of course, most of the people he kills has got, they have masks on, so you don't see him. He just shoots him in the head. He throws him around. You know, he grabs somebody else, shoots him in the, in the throat. I mean, it's just, it's almost ridiculous how just absolutely dehumanizing the violence is. You want a good little tidbit? He actually kills most of those guys twice in the film. In the early portions of the film, Everybody has like a beard on, but they didn't have enough money for multiple extras. So they just had everybody shave and then reused them at the end. Well, you could probably even do it a third time because what you would do is, is then they were wearing a mask. See, there you go. Right. Mask, beard, and then clean shaven, right? Yeah. yeah. I'll turn 20 extras into 60 right there. But yeah. yeah, total total kill count for that movie, 77. Is that all? I thought it would be over 100. Oh, no, no. I have confirmation from both the producer and Keanu Reeves that it's 84. Really? Where are they getting the other seven from? Because I've, I've got it broken down here by kills with firearms, kills with bomb detonations, other kills. And I've got, I'm coming out with 77 on this infographic. Hmm. I don't know. It was, in my, it was in my notes. We are preempting a did you know. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe. And that's, uh, you know, maybe that's a great way to drive, drive some... Uh, engagement here with the show too like hey tell us if it's it's seven watch it tell us who's right (laughs) so my relationship to this is i remember rob at one point saying this is my favorite so i'm like all right i'll give these a chance and i remember distinctly we were on vacation the entire family in that cabin during the pandemic or was this last fall or i guess two falls ago whatever it was two falls ago so fall of 21 and uh, I just sat down and I'm like, all right, all three of these are on Peacock. I'll just bang them all out. And they're fun. They're easy to get through. You don't have much complication. The plot is simple but effective. And, you know, other than a lot of these action films where they're trying to stage these giant set pieces and then putting a script in between them, I thought the script for the most part works pretty well at staging a fun action film. But I do agree, for the most part, these are just nameless henchmen. And it reminds me of that scene from uh, Austin Powers and Goldmember. Oh, you don't even have a name tag. You're, of course, going to be killed. (laughs) So what's your relationship, Rob? Well, this is an interesting one because, and and I won't say this is my favorite movie because of the relationship it had to my former line of work. Um, Not that I'm a secret assassin or anything like that. But we don't know that for sure. Well, right. Maybe this is just the cover. Who knows? Uh, but I used to work for an organization called the United States Concealed Carry Association. And it was my job to be their social media voice. So I got immersed in a ton of John Wick-esque stuff, but also the safety and legal and all of these other sides to it. So for a, a very large part of my life, 
and this does not make me some sort of, you know, gun-toting wild person or anything like that, but for a very large part of my life, firearms defense and things like that was a integral part of who I was. And so this movie, with its accuracy of depiction of, of firearms usage and how uh, somebody who is incredibly proficient can take on multiple assailants, uh, you know, maybe he took a few hits. And I don't know if he'd be as, as functional as he would be after being stitched up. But, you know, I knew some people who that couldn't necessarily give John Wick a, some, a run for his money, but had a lot of these skills from their time in the military, from their time as contractors, from their time as part of the world that uses uh, firearms on a regular basis. So uh, this this movie is, again, one of my favorites because it's sort of tied to that portion of my life. I've since moved beyond that uh, that portion of my life and still, you know, try to make sure that, uh, you know, firearms are a thing that I'm familiar with and whatnot. But I think the accuracy of that having lined up with what I know from, you know, this job where my uh, one of the people I've, I think is kind of, you know, kind of mini John Wick said to me, Rob, you have to get this stuff right on social media because if you get it wrong, people die. Now, again, I'm not out there working with an H&K in each hand or anything like that, but helping educate people about the legal and effective use of a firearm if they would ever need it was kind of my own little personal mission of helping save lives. It's cool. Dad, you want to take a stab at what this movie's about? <sighs> it's it's a <laughs> boy. I know I've I, I've I've been. This is one of the questions that I was wrestling with this morning when I was trying to prepare before my uh, court hearing, and I'm going, okay, I, I could give more in depth feel or you know meaning to it, but it's basically about I. <laughs> Boy, I'm struggling. I still, I don't know if I've got a good answer. I'm just going to leave it at that because I think I'm not able to clearly articulate what it's about. I think other than the fact that it's just an action film and it's done in a way that is just designed to lift you out of the average mundane into another world, that's about the best I could say. This film has one of the probably the oldest motivations in film or or literature or anything like that it's a revenge story it really is and i think it shows it takes a special person to be a very especially evil person to be cruel to a puppy and again we oftentimes in pop culture use the term well we're killing puppies like if you really think about that though yosef when he does wipe out daisy sorry spoilers folks that that is a sick person that is a very sick person and i think this much in the, the same way that other uh, great movies like Tombstone are, are re- revenge stories, basically, you know, I think this is a great revenge story because a lot of times we see, whether it's on the news or things like that, we see awful things happen in the world and the people responsible for them don't pay the price. And I think that that is the strength of this true movie where you have all these bad guys who are mentally awful, physically awful, horrible human beings and then they meet their match, or in this case, they meet Baba Yaga, who is the boogeyman, the person who all the bad guys are afraid of. You know, the monsters meet their monster. And I think that that's a great way to, to frame this movie. And I don't want to necessarily get too far ahead of ourselves, because I'm pretty certain at some point we're going to discuss two and three 
which I think for the majority of the population, they think two is probably the best of these and that each one is kind of just scaled up the universe as well as the amount of action and set pieces that were within these films. But for me, I think this is the deepest of the three films that has yet to come out. And it's part of the reason it draws to me. I like each of them for individual moments, but this one to me isn't just a vengeance film. I I think it's very easy to see that at, at its essence. But for me, this is actually a grief film. This is dealing with loss. And I boiled it down to what I felt was kind of a, an effective tagline. It's the guy who has lost everything returning to the life that he gave up. Well, the one thing that I will point to is, is that everybody has a motive for their action. And, you know, for the most part, especially when there's violence involved, people have a hard time understanding how, you know, I'm a dog lover. I have dogs, you know, et cetera. I mean, the worst part of the film is the death of the puppy. But how many people would say, all right, your dog dies and now I'm going to go kill 84 people because of it and feel that that's justified. But we don't understand some people's motives. And I think that ultimately is the key to this is, is that people deal with things differently that we don't understand. And this was not just a dog, but the last tie to the woman that tried to change his life or did change his life. And now that's gone. And so he has no safety net. It kind of explains, but it doesn't explain. And I think it kind of brings home the fact that people have bizarre motives about things and perceptions. Having gone through an experience with somebody with homicidal tendencies and not understanding why they were so inclined to murder 20 years after the fact. I mean, this brings home that something that can be relatively, that would seem to most to not justify the action in someone else's mind clearly justifies the action. Well, I'll take it a step further, and I, I'm pretty sure you haven't watched either Chapter 2 or Chapter 3, Dad, yes? No. I watched a little bit of 2 with you. I think the further on into the films that you go, and the more backstory you get on his upbringing and the rest of it, it's not just the grief for his wife, but what she represented as an option for him to get out, because realistically, that was his open door towards dealing with a lot of the trauma that he was brought up with. And I'll specifically reference some points that are made in the third film as to where he comes from and his actual name, which is not John Wick. That's his assassin name. Okay. I'm not going to spoil it because, like I said, I'm sure at some point we'll probably get to the other two on this, this particular show. All right. So let's give a little bit more background on this. Dad, do you have a plot summary ready for us? I do. One of the world's top assassins, John Wick. Keanu Reeves, retires after marrying the love of his life. However, her sudden death leaves John in deep mourning, but his wife's last gift, a puppy, seems to give John a reason to move ahead. Nevertheless, when a sadistic mobster and his thugs steal John's prized car and kill the puppy in the process, John sets out to seek vengeance. 
Will his vengeance drag him back into the world of mayhem, mutilation, and murder? Or will he find salvation? Thank you. Did you know? According to Keanu Reeves, he did 90% of his own stunts in the film. Did you know? Director Chad Stahelski was Keanu Reeves' stunt double in the Matrix movies. Did you know? Omer Barnea, who played Gregory, the man responsible for Daisy's death, genuinely felt horrible when shooting the scene, and the first thing he'd do as soon as the cameras stopped filming was cuddling and petting the precious puppy. Did you know? Keanu Reeves' preparation for the role included weapons and martial arts training, eight hours per day for four months. Did you know? In the original script, the character of John Wick was written with, quote, a man in his mid-60s to play the role. Given the title character's fabled reputation, ergo, the filmmakers had initially imagined an older actor. However, head of Thunder Road Pictures, Basil Iwanek, decided against this, stating, instead, we decided to look for someone who is not literally older, but who has a seasoned history in the film world. Did you know? John Wick is referred to as the one who you send to kill Baba Yaga. The Slavic lore, Baba Yaga is usually portrayed as a witch that lives in a house standing on chicken legs. She is often portrayed in a scary way, but tends to act more like a trickster. Even so, she has been known to be helpful to those who are pure of heart. Did you know? Lance Reddick plays the hotel concierge, whose name is Sharon. In Greek mythology, Sharon is the ferryman of Hades. You have to pay Sharon for safe passage. Hence why Lance Reddick puts the gold coin in his pocket at the hotel. John, in a sense, is paying for safe passage. Did you know? According to a cast interview, both producer Basil Iwanek and Keanu Reeves referenced the number 84 as being the total number of kills by John Wick. That's so weird. And finally, do you have a guess as to who was the inspiration for the name John Wick? I knew this at one point. I knew this. Derek Kolstad's grandfather, 88-year-old John Wick, served as the inspiration for the movie's title and character name. So there is a real-life John Wick. I don't know if he's still alive at this point in time. You'd be close to 100, but uh, there was a real John Wick. Probably under your bed somewhere. (laughs) So we'll take our first break of the show, and we'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode... Next week, we are discussing the best worst movie ever made, The Room from 2003, written, directed, and starring Tommy Wiseau, and co-written and starring Greg Sestero. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Gentlemen, we have best performance up. Does anyone not have Keanu? I don't. You do not? I do not. Wow. Okay, I'll let you lead off then. I have Chad Stahulski, the director. This film is made by the pacing and the timing of every scene and every action event. Keanu is great, but he's secondary to the pacing and the timing. And so that's why I went with that route. I also have Keanu, though, for most charismatic. He's a star, and there's no question, but... If they don't have this film strung together and done the way it does, it loses a lot, even though he's really good throughout the film. So that's why I couldn't go with him as the number one. 
I can't fault your arguments too much because I have Stahelski as my best secondary because I do think this establishes a template that he's able to use going forward. And obviously being Keanu's stunt double at one point in time, he knows his way around a lot of the stunt coordination that was necessary for the film. But I just think that over the entire body of work, because you're having to create a visceral character out of almost nothing who isn't going to say a whole lot. And so a lot of his performance has to be in his facial manner and his body acting throughout the course of the film. I think that Keanu is so very physical in this movie without necessarily being the prototypical action hero, the giant athlete ripped guy, the Stallone, the Schwarzenegger, the Vin Diesel, the Dwayne the Rock Johnson type. He is not built like a tank. He is a very kind of slight man, but he has a very special set of skills. And I know that's the wrong franchise, but even so. (laughs) The way he positions himself, and I think you notice it a lot more, especially when you're really not focusing on the plot. So the second or third time through this movie, the way he just holds a gun becomes almost a characteristic I think I saw somewhere in the research, I didn't put it in the did you know section, but he performs like three or four different military style like positionings with just his body movement through the course of just moving through that club scene that I think are extraordinary. I mean, the level and degree to which he had to participate, we said eight hours a day for four months just to get ready for the role and then create a legendary character where you're not seeing Keanu, you're seeing John Wick. You're not associating him with all of the characters he's had before, but he's transforming into this new thing. I think that's why I would give him my best performance. Let me just throw this out. You talked about in the did you know section that this was written for somebody in his 60s. What if you were to, instead of Keanu, inserted Denzel Washington? Okay, then you have the equalizer. Yes, and that's where I'm going. Having seen him do the equalizer, if he were to do this part, I think he could do the part and do it very well, and I think he could probably do it almost as well, if not as well, as Keanu, and it's because of the pacing and the editing. But I'm going to argue against that. Not that you couldn't change out actors and it would still be a well-done film, but you don't lose sense of who they are. Denzel, no matter what action movie he's in, it's just Denzel being a badass in an action movie. I don't care if he's the equalizer. I don't care if it's Man on Fire. I don't care if it's Crimson Tide. He is Denzel every time. And Liam Neeson is just Liam Neeson doing the same Taken character in every movie he does. But Keanu transforms himself in different parts. Neo is very different from John Wick is different from Johnny Utah. Rob, where did you come down? Uh, you know, I have, to, I have to give it to Keanu. I think my my supporting actor bid is going to be a lot, a lot bigger. I just think knowing, again, the physicality, what Keanu puts into this role, I think you can't take that away from him. You know, uh, you know, referencing my prior career and things like that, I know guys who can do some of this shit. And to watch, you know, you mentioned military style reloads and blading and, and blading and things like that, you know, the you know positioning of your body and whatnot, the amount of repetition and thought and like just the flow of how he moves in this movie 
and looks like, you know, these guys that, you know, have four tours in Iraq and 30 years of military service under their belt and have been training all the time, every single day. You know, I think he does a great job of recreating that as somebody who is not an actual military person, assassin, or mercenary, (laughs) in this case, in his, you know, day job. So did you have Keanu as your secondary pop? Yes. Okay. And uh, Rob, who is your secondary? You know, I am tied here between the performance of Ian McShane as Winston and also Michael Nyquist as Vigo. And I think these two gentlemen, the, that the only way that, that guys who have aged out of like the, their younger, more violent days, you know, when you're younger, you're dumb and sometimes you do dumb things. I think they both have this wonderful energy around them that they live in this very dangerous world and they just exude like people don't mess with them. People, you know, Ian McShane, sit down and have a drink. Like there's no fighting at Winston's bar. There's no fighting at the Continental. And then of course, Michael Nyquist, you know, the way that he parents Yosef of like, I'm your dad. I love you so much. And now I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, rough you up because you're a moron. And I think that the portrayal of these two mature men was really excellent for this movie. And I think they did a great job. And it's just a shame that Michael Nyquist is dead. It really is. It kind of reminds me your, your comment is well taken because in, in my office, there are certain judges that are rather abusive to the associates. (laughs) And so they make me go in and they don't treat me like that because they know better. Mm-hmm. It's, it's that old man strength, kind of. Yeah, I've been doing it longer than they have. And so a lot of the judges who just really are mean-spirited and try to take on the associates will not touch me. And if they do, I will fight back, and they know that. And it has not come out well when they have. And so it's that's, that's that mentality. There's a certain air about an individual who's been through hell and come back that you just don't take them on. Right. Especially after they've aged slight digression here. When my, when I was growing up, my sister had a friend whose father was Panamanian guy was like five foot four stocky. His name was Ricardo. And he, you know, great jovial dude and things like that. Well, eventually he had a, they had a son and that was my sister's friend's brother. And the son grew up and he got real, you know, kind of aggressive, you know, that eight, 17, 18 year old angst. And, you know, Ricardo's, aging at that point, you know, he's in his, you know, mid fifties and things like that. And so his son, you know, gets to be 18 and is really acting up and one day decides to fight his dad. And he literally, uh, Ricardo takes his son by the, by the collar and says, listen to me, I will have the first minute and just lets him go. That like old man straight, like to, to pardon my French, like I will, I will fuck you up for the first minute. And then after that, it's yours. But man, to just know that that for the first minute he is going to get the beating of a lifetime if he steps to his father is like, and that sounds like such a horrible and violent thing, but you know the the young man was was in a very volatile stage at that point, and you know Ricardo just literally said, "You're going to come at me, and I'm going to have that. You're going to have that. Uh, I'm going to have that first minute, and you will be very sorry." <laughs> so I see that same energy in the Michael Nyquist and Ian McShane. I have Ian McShane as my most charismatic. I think he's the most likable character in this, but I also see him serving a certain archetype purpose in kind of the hero's journey. I mean, this is an anti-hero 
of course, in John Wick. But you have to have almost a father-like figure that's helping you guide through these movies as you continue to go throughout them. And he seems to take on that role. It's obviously more in-depth the more we go into this franchise. But I think Most Charismatic is pretty easy because every time you pop up, you're like, oh, I'm glad to see him. To me, he takes on the role of like a Alec Guinness, Obi-Wan Kenobi from Star Wars. I was going to say, there's only one role Alec Guinness is known for. (laughs) Yeah, he's the father figure that kind of serves the overarching role and helps immerse you in the world and give a lot of the exposition to the hero as they're continuing on in their journey. Ian McShane is the only actor I can conceive of if they were ever to do a remake of Jaws playing the Robert Shaw character. Quint, yes. Yes. Oh my gosh, it's brilliant, Dana. I love it. Hollywood, make that happen. Oh boy. I No, I, I think there could be a few, but you'd have to give me some time. Well, that was my immediate thought is, is this is a British... Is he, I think he's Scottish, isn't he, Ian McShane? I believe so, yeah. Okay, well, I mean, Robert Shaw is obviously Irish, but the difference between the Irish and the Scottish is just who raped whose women at one point in time crossing five centuries ago. I mean, being both Scottish and Irish on my dad's side of the family, it's kind of, you can't tell where one begins and one ends type of thing. That's where you get all the... Uh predisposition towards anger, aggression, and drinking. Yes. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Anyway, so I I come from the stereotypes of uh, rabble rouser, etc., from all kinds of different aspects of my heritage. (laughs) I I do agree that there is a certain charismatic aspect of... Gravitas. Yes, and I mean, every every once in a while, he'll just pop up. I'm re-watching The West Wing, and he's playing a Russian diplomat in the the West Wing. And he's just like, he takes over the episode. I don't think he can play Quint because, unfortunately, if you were to redo that movie, Quint has to be a New Englander who has served on the USS Indianapolis and is inherently American. And I've never heard Ian McShane not speak with some heavy accent. Hmm. Do you remember Robert Shaw speaking with an Irish accent throughout the entire film? I understand. I mean, he was probably drunk, you know. Probably. (laughs) I mean, from from the character standpoint, yes. From the actor standpoint, yes, yes, yes. (laughs) The only scene in the movie where he might have been sober, and it was because he called Spielberg late at night, he felt so guilty for doing it so poorly when he was drunk, is the Indianapolis speech. Yes. Most charismatic, Pop. Uh, I had Keanu, because he is. He's extremely charismatic. That's, That's his biggest attribute. I mean, this is a guy who walks onto the screen and you immediately like him. And then on top of it, if you hear any of his background stories, I mean, from the fact that carries around thousands and thousands of dollars in cash with him and like run into somebody who needs, you know, like they're got to sign up. They're trying to raise money for their daughter's surgery. And all of a sudden you'll just hand them $7,000 after he checks out to make sure their story is legit. He's just everybody likes him. He just comes across as one of the most likable people on screen. 
And to think it all started with Bill and Ted. Excellent! (laughs) Most charismatic for you, Rob. You know, I have to... I think I'm going to have to go with Adrian Palicki. I think Miss Perkins has swagger, my friend. I really do. I think, number one, she's an absolutely beautiful woman. That, you know, that goes without saying. But number two, you can tell that she is a a player in this. And again, now we see a little bit behind the scenes as the movie goes on that she's she maybe isn't as out there as, you know, she, she plays for keeps, but the other guys play for keeps. In this case, you know, up getting up against John uh, and things like that. But I really think she... She almost slithers across the screen sometimes. And I think that is so emboldening for her character that she is, she's like, I'm a badass. Look at me. I'm a woman. I'm a woman in a man's world Uh, here in the, you know, underbelly of uh, New York's assassin thing. And of course they, she's really the only female assassin we've seen, but I really think she has a swagger and she knows it too. It's, it's like uh, you ever have a pet that knows it's attractive. I've got one of those. Rabbit will pose for pictures, you know, and it's, she's kind of the same way, if you will. Yeah, we don't know any pets who are manipulative like that, do we? Right? <laughs> Let's move to best scene. Let's see here. I have 10 down. And I think that might cover almost the entire film. I think it covers the whole film. <laughs> Except for the first 15 minutes. I left everything out of the first 15 minutes because it's basically just kind of build up. And once about the point where the guys drop in on him at his house, that's when the movie kind of kicks into gear. So did either of you have any thoughts on the first 15 minutes or anything you want to nominate for that? Otherwise, I'm just going to skip right past it. Well, uh, I have that as my most indelible moment because that's the turning point. It's you feel utter sympathy for this guy with the dead dog laying there. That's not bad. I, I didn't have that one, but I guess that makes sense. So the first one I have is Vigo berating Iosef, because that to me is where you get all the exposition of the film, where this is the guy that's not the boogeyman. It's the guy you send to kill the boogeyman. He killed three guys in a bar with a pencil. I mean, just building the myth of who John Wick is so that when he comes at you, there's a place of like fear associated with it. And so it, it builds this character up. The next one I had down, John's house cleanup. So that's Vigo sending in the first group of assassins and him just mowing people down in his house. The next part, the Continental Hotel, because it establishes the larger world of the assassins and that this isn't just him working for one mob group, but there's this bigger interconnected universe. Obviously, they build upon that in the subsequent movies. The Red Circle, which is the club scene, and I think that's at least a good 10-15 minutes. I have the first interaction with Miss Perkins. I have John is captured, and then I have Marcus saving John. So what I have by John is captured is, is basically him attacking the armored vehicles and then being subdued during the course of that. Then when he's actually in kind of a captive situation and Marcus shoots through to get to the one guy and he ends up saving John. I have safe house, which is him actually getting to Iosef. Marcus is killed. And then the final kind of scene, I guess, before we get to the final, final scene or the epilogue, but John versus Vigo, anything I missed. You know, I've got to actually, I should have 
spoken up a little bit earlier with the first 15 minutes. I think Aurelio's call to Vigo is one of the best scenes in there. You know, John Leguizamo picks up that phone, ring, 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 gets to gets to Victor. I heard you struck my son. Yeah, well, he uh, stole John Wick's car and uh, killed his dog. Oh. And just the fact that he's like, oh, shit, we are really in trouble here. I think it's, it's again, that legend building that you talked about of, you know, he's describing all of these, you know, things that he's done. But the, the real deal is when he's like, oh, my, oh, my God, he's going to come, you know, John will come for you. and There'll be nothing you can do about it. <laughs> you know, I, I, I can really empathize sometimes with fathers whose sons fuck up. But I, yeah, like, <laughs> how do you fix that, man? It's like a force of nature. <laughs> <laughs> not one comment. Wow. Oh, I would have thought there would. I'm not taking the, the fairly obvious bait. <laughs> <laughs> Try to bail you out there, Tom. I <laughs> know, oh, I've fucked up enough in my life, but everybody Same here. does. Everybody so. does, yep. I'm not going to worry about it too much. But on my deathbed, I shall receive full consciousness. So I got that going for me. Mm-hmm. So best scene. It's low key, but it's the bathhouse scene. Number one, music, totally vibing. Love that song. Think, and I can't remember by, by, the, by the group, but just fabulous piece of music. Uh, very good there. But you see what Yosef lives with every day. That Victor is actually his babysitter. And Gregory is just along for the ride. But Yosef is this spoiled, rich, little asshole. And he's got pretty girls and bottles of vodka. And he literally cries like a toddler when they, when Kirill is like, stop being a baby. And I just, I think the pacing of that and the exposition of this kid just sucks. And, you know, and John's going to eat him alive is a great expository scene. But also it starts at such a low key point of like, hey, it's just a bunch of guys and girls having some fun in a hot tub, you know, not in like a wild and crazy way, but, you know, sing a little drinking song, pouring some shots, and then it starts to ramp up. And then you get some of that great music uh, from La Castlevania in the background, that real deep pumping, dun, dun, and the whole scene is a lot like a roller coaster ride where that initial bathhouse scene is kind of like climbing the incline and you hit that part where john wick enters and murders uh victor and it's you're down going down the hill man there's loop to loops and stuff right ahead of you i think it's one of my favorite scenes in there again musically and then also storytelling wise as well i agree it's the red circle for me simply because i think it's the peak of you've gotten all the mythology there and you've gotten kind of a tease when he's in his house and he's mowing guys down but you don't get the full actualization of what he's capable of until you hit that moment. Right, he's got when, home field advantage. He's got home field advantage in his house. Correct. And by the moment that he asks the guard, you know, you've dropped some weight. And supposedly the 60 pounds he's referring to is the the bodyguard or the guy, the, the bouncer, is telling him how many guys are in the club that he's going to have to mow down. Mm-hmm. 60 kilograma. <laughs> In order for him to basically just completely tear these guys apart and be like a hot knife through butter, I I just think it's probably the best scene. The only one that would be close to me is the safe house, and that's only because you get the satisfaction of Yosef dying at the end of that and not even getting out the last word of, it was only a... 
Yeah, but and the other thing too, it's not a special kill. That's the best thing about what he what he just he just disposes him like he's trash. It's incredible. Like you know, usually it's all these big fights and oh, I you know I'm gonna you know print Princess Bride. No to the pain, you know things like that. I'm gonna cut off your your ears and your eyes and or no that you can keep your ears. Uh, but your nose and your eyes, no, no, he just literally just blows them away. And there's nothing that Yosef can do about it. I love that. There's not some big fist fight at the end of a Marvel movie. It's just, okay, you're dead. I agree. And as somebody who uh, went to college with a bunch of kids who came from extremely wealthy backgrounds and saw how they just abused their experience. I'm like, I went to college. I'm like, I'm not blowing this. This is the, this is the, this is my ticket out of my previous or where, you know, where I came from, you know, and they're flipping, you know, well, my dad only gave me $2,000 credit limit on his credit card that I could use in college here to buy everybody beer. And I'm watching this and I'm going, Oh, Oh, you know, there were so many times that, it, this would scene would be just so juicy for some of the things I felt at times. I, I think it speaks to a lot of people who have come from uh, more modest backgrounds in life. This kid is going to get his just desserts for being a uh, elitist uh, little bitch. And so that's why that's my best scene and my favorite scene for that matter. It is mine as well. Rob, your favorite? I think I started, didn't I, with Red Circle? Well, that was for best. Well, that was for best. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Was that also your favorite? Make a clean sweep or no? Let me go with... Hold tight here for a second. I'm debating between two of them. I think I'm going to go back to the beginning. I think I'm going to go back to the beginning again when Iosef pulls into Aurelio's with John's car. And even these, you know, hardened car chop shop guys are like what the hell are you doing here with this the 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 generic or the the overall freak out of like i know this car why do you have this car you didn't kill the guy who had this car some like because of course they ask him did you kill him and they know that there's no way yosef got the drop on john Wick. there's no way and they ask him that and he's like no nah, just you know he's just some dude and it's like Again, the exposition, the legend builds again, and just Aurelio being like, just get out, just leave, because he doesn't want to be collateral damage. He's he's known John for many years, and I think that the the interaction that eventually transpires between the two of them, where John comes looking for his vehicle, and you know, he can commandeer a car from Aurelio with no I mean, we don't see any money change hands, but I'm sure maybe it's a coin or two. But John walks in off the bus and walks out with a muscle car. <laughs> and I just think that is a, a very, another great expository scene about what John can do. And it's not necessarily his gunplay that is at, at stake here. We have, we have two very, very nice cars that John Wick has in this film. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> Gotta get me one of those. I'm sure you can't though. Cause everybody's got, everyone wants one now, right? <laughs> yeah, I know. My dad always used to lament the fact that when he and my mother married, he or my mother had a '57 Bel Air convertible, oh, Robin's Egg Blue, with white interior, and he had a '55 Ford Coupe, and they traded them in 
We get a family in power. Oh, that's almost as bad as my dad trading in his uh, 79 Camaro. Oh, my God. <laughs> I want to cry. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Yellow 79 Camaro, Bumblebee. But uh, <laughs> he said it was an awesome car. So, oh, well. Yeah, 1961 Mach 1 Mustang. Though that's most indelible moment. Dad's already given his. Mine, I thought was going to be a little bit more obvious, but Dad has me rethinking it. But I'm going to go with it anyway. Yeah, I'm thinking I'm back. I think I got a pile on that one with you, Tom. I, I really because there's that emo, that raw emotion. Killed that from me. Took that from me. So yeah, I'm back. You know, just. Well, Fantastic. It'd be one thing if it was just, I'm back. Oh, but totally. No, it's the weird way he goes about it in an action hero cliche of, I'm thinking I'm back. Right. All right. Let's take our second break here and we'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode and before we get to the Stanley rubric in a minute... If you're ever curious about our Master Greatest Movies of All Time list that has every graded movie we've ever discussed on the show, there's a link in the episode description of every episode of this show, or you can go to RonnieDuncanStudios.com and find it as the top entry on the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast show page. That has the grades we've done so far for all 145 movies we've graded, and we continue to add more each week. Make sure to check that out as we go and follow along. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? Yes. George P. Wilbur, American actor and stuntman, Halloween 4, Remote Control, The Running Man, and he uh, was a well-known stuntman in Hollywood. And then Charles Kimbrough, 86, American actor, uh, was best known for Murphy Brown, uh, also did a voice uh, for Hunchback of Notre Dame, and he was in The Wedding Planner. couple of extra notes. George P. Wilbur was the second Michael Myers of the franchise and is credited with kind of bringing him back for Halloween 4 after the declining success of Halloween 3 at the time. And even though he was in a less successful sequel to that in Halloween 5, was still was thought of as bringing the franchise back kind of from the dead, so to say. And so a lot of people have credited him with uh, kind of resuscitating that. Charles Kimbrough also won an Emmy for his portrayal of, uh, I don't know, what was his character on Murphy Brown, but... He was the anchor man. I, I can't remember the name. And so we recognize these two fine actors here for their work and contributions with a moment of silence in their honor. Thank you. Let's move to Best Funniest Lines... First one up, the one I just referenced before the break. When Helen died, I lost everything. Until that dog arrived on my doorstep, a final gift from my wife. In that moment, I received some semblance of hope. An opportunity to grieve unalone. And your son took that from me. Stole that from me. Killed that from me. People keep asking if I'm back. And I haven't really had an answer. But now, yeah, I'm thinking I'm back. So you can either hand over your son or you can die screaming alongside him. That's the best you're going to get from me for an impersonation. It wasn't bad. It was pretty good, man. All right. Who's up? 
I got a couple. I got a couple. I think uh, one of my favorites is uh, that Dean Winter's character, Avi, does not carry a gun. He's the underboss of that crime syndicate. He does not carry a firearm. And he is begging Vigo at one point. Who's got a gun? Give me a gun. And, you know, Vigo plays with him a little bit by, you know, putting the putting his Glock over the seat and, you know, kind of playing a keep away a little bit with him, which is so funny. And then, of course, when, when Avi gets it, he's kind of, you know, Dean Winters. He's mayhem. And it's it's kind of funny to watch him in that more serious role, but he but it's like Mayhem gets a gun and tries to take down Keanu Reeves. And I think that's really funny. The other one is when uh Wick, you know, is able to uh uh get Vigo into a uh he's in the SUV and he takes the Caltech KSG and he just blows the driver away and Vigo's cool it, cool it, cool it, cool it, cool it, you know, <laughs> really old like the guy just murdered your compatriot here. Uh, in in fairly cold blood, uh, but you know you're saying you're telling him to cool it. I don't know if that's going to work. And then last but not least, the other one is uh, I don't think our laundry is that good, Mister Week. I think uh, Lance Reddick steals the show a little bit uh, with his delightfully charming and calm voice when describing the Continental's uh, skill of laundry. Perhaps some whiskey. <laughs> Vigo Tarasov, it's not what you did, son. That angers me so. It's who you did it to. I saw her so. Who? That fucking nobody? Vigo. That fucking nobody is John Wick. He once was an associate of ours. They called him Baba Yago. I saw the boogeyman? Vigo. Well, John wasn't exactly the boogeyman. He was the one who was sent to kill the fucking boogeyman. <laughs> Pretty good, man. Pretty good. Jimmy, you uh, working again? John? No, I was just sorting some stuff out. <laughs> you got any more, Rob? Uh, let me think here. I It's maybe not a bust a, bust a gut, laugh out loud, memorable, you know, kind of funny moment line. But uh, when Winston revokes Miss Perkins' membership to the Continental Club, and she gets smoked by four dudes at once. Like, ooh. <laughs> And then, of course, I have to reference the one from earlier with uh, Aurelio calling Vigo and saying, I heard you struck my son. Yeah, well, he uh, killed John Wick's dog and stole his car. Oh. <laughs> I, can't re- I can't remember the hotel manager's name. Winston? Winston? Right. Ian, Ian McShane, right? Yeah, that's Winston. He's the owner. Yeah. No, it was the guy, the front desk guy. And that's the concierge, and that's Sharon. Sharon? Okay. John Wick. Yes. Sharon, I apologize for calling you at this hour. We've received a lot of grievances from your floor concerning the noise. Wick. Ah, my apologies. I was dealing with an uninvited guest. Uh, have you need of, say, a dinner reservation, perhaps? Perhaps. I'll have to get back to you. <laughs> Which it always surprised me why they didn't send, like, I, I would think the Continental would have a security team of some sort, because that's, like, like safe zone, if you will. There's no business to be conducted on Continental grounds. Don't you think you'd have to, as a backup plan to when people are... Okay, so you know, not, not to delve too much further into the movies, but by the end of three, you already know that they don't have a security detail. And the reason why is they're protected by the table. By the way, it's not part of Did You Know, 
but the building that the Continental was in in New York was originally Domenico's restaurant. That is the place that was in the uh, 19th century where they created Lobster Newburg, Baked Alaska, Eggs Benedict. It was an extremely famous restaurant. It was the place that people like Theodore Roosevelt and all the New York elite went for dinner. The Domenico Steak, which is a steak that's got uh, like a sauce on it and a butter sauce and all that. Yeah, that was that was the scene. They they did that as an homage to the history of of the restaurant. That's super cool. I just I didn't know that. That's a great one. Vigo, they know you're coming, John. Of course, but it won't matter. Either of you have any left yet? I still got two more. I'm running dry. Mag- magazine's out. Dad, enter your cartridge. Winston, have you thought this through? I mean. Chewed down to the bone? You got out once. You dip so much as a pinky back into this pond, you may well find something reaches out and drags you back into its depths. And then finally, Vigo. People don't change. You know that. Times they do. All right, let's go to the Stanley rubric. We have Legacy up first. Who would like to lead off? Let our guest. Yeah, I'll tackle that. I think that this has... For, for ha- only having been out, you know, eight, nine years here. And yes, there are sequels, and I, I personally believe that they're inferior products to the original, but uh, I think it has a great legacy. I think it has something that can be, it's the new standard for for an action movie in the new millennium. Um, and I really think that that in 20, 30, 40 years, you know, when I'm a very old man, I will look back on this and say to, you know, whatever grand things I have, children, you know, <laughs> children, rabbits, doesn't matter to me, you know, pets, <laughs> that, uh, let me rephrase that. I will, I will look at any any children that are in my life uh, that age, my nieces or any children that I may have, and say this is this was the, the movie for action movies now, much like Predator was in the 80s or even before that, you know, you had, you know, The Magnificent Seven was a great, you know, kind of action style movie way back in the, the 60s, I think. But I think that it really is the, the new generation there. And I think it has a wonderful legacy to leave and it's already written one um, already. I do hope that they kind of stop with the sequels a little bit because I think that Hollywood has a very bad habit lately of ruining really great franchises with, by making stamping out too many of them. So uh, if I have to give a number to this, I would say it's probably, it's probably an eight and a half. Okay. Dad, do you want to go or do you want me? Sure. Industry. It was well thought of. It was, interestingly, some of the reviews that were positive referred to this as a B-film. I thought it was interesting. Rolling Stone referred to it as a B-film. So I went with a four for the industry, but the public loved it. I mean, anytime you can make four or five times the budget, you've done a pretty good job. So I went with a 4.5 for Legacy, because it's had a tail. It's had multiple sequels. It's something that's still considered and talked about. I mean, it's still in the genre, and it's been almost nine years since the original release. So I went with a 4.5, so I also had an 8.5. Okay. Industry-wise, 
like I don't put this on the level of something as say like the Fast franchise, which there have been at least two of those films that have grossed over a billion dollars, and they're huge every time they come out. They're single handedly propping up Universal as a movie studio. <laughs> These films aren't quite to that level, but I do think they have cultural impact. And so Hollywood recognizing that, recognizing that they can still make action stars out of guys that are a little bit weathered. And yes, I know that for the most part, our action stars are usually not even, unless they're in a superhero genre. And even then, I think, you know, Chris Hemsworth's probably pushing 40 at this point. You're just not getting guys that are younger than 40 being your action stars. Everybody is your dad or your grandpa beating up bad guys. (laughs) <laughs> that being said, they recognized the commercial success of the first one. They blew out the second one. And I think that's why everybody looks at that as like the peak of this franchise so far. Personally, I prefer the third over the second, but that's just a matter of taste. And I am looking forward to this chapter four. And I do think that these are relatively simply made. I don't think that they have nearly the amount of CGI or major stunts that you have to put in a Marvel film or a fast film or any of these other ones. Mission Impossible. Mission Impossible is another good one example, or maybe a James Bond. You don't have to have some of the major set pieces. I mean, we're never going to see John Wick go to space. That's never going to be something entertaining. It would be ridiculous. As ridiculous as these movies have slowly become to a degree, and the action stunts seem to be more out of the... Bruce Lee cookbook, I still think that they are somewhat grounded and that actually makes these a little bit more fun, even though while the universe is expanding, it has become a little sillier as things have gone along. Yeah, that's if I can tag tag onto that too. That's why I've not even seen three. I watched one. I loved how grounded it was. Two, I, I watched two. I hated how two blew it out. And then I stopped watching the franchise. So... I can't put it on the level to say it's a five. I think it's at about a four industry-wise. Audience-wise, because this is seen as kind of just the appetizer of sorts, (laughs) I think for the majority of people, the more preferable second and third and eventually fourth installment, I would say that the audience is actually not as on board for this original film as they are for some of the other ones. And so I think it's relatively popular but not nearly as popular as the other ones which are a little bit bigger more action set piece heavy so i'm gonna go a 3.5 for a 7.5 for me so that's an 8.17 average between the three of us impact significance again based on that this has had multiple sequels out already it's got another one coming in a little bit more than i think six weeks from when we're recording this I think the audience has been there for these movies. I think this is kind of one of those very few films in the modern era that has had multiple lives where in the 90s we had films that would come and go. Shawshank Redemption would be one of these rounders. I'm trying to think of some other ones, but didn't necessarily do well, but they were okay in theaters, but they kind of took on a life after that. And then as multiple sequels started to come out, they became bigger and bigger and bigger. The Fast franchise kind of worked that way, where the original one is just kind of a direct ripoff of Point Break, 
even though I like the original Fast and Furious movie, as they've gone along, like by the time you get to Fast Five and they're just dragging a bank vault across Rio de Janeiro, it's just kind of ridiculous. So I do think that the further they go with these, they're going to have to continue to top it themselves. And if we end up having seven John Wicks, I just wonder if he's just going to transform into Neo by that point. But let's get to that when we actually get there. From an industry standpoint, though, I think they slow played these movies. I don't think there was quite the initial impact overall, even though I I can't see there being too many other copycats of these movies, even though I think they've been influential from a tone. I just don't see too many other action movies really looking like this quite yet, even though I think it eventually will have the predominance on gunplay and hand-to-hand combat. It's just not necessarily the way that like a Jason Bourne film kind of was the foundational piece after those three movies came out for just about every other action film of the late 2000s and early 2010s for hand-to-hand combat and the slick editing and how they kind of went about doing all of those uh, very close-in shots. I just don't see this having quite the same track record quite yet, although I think it will get there especially as these things have gotten bigger and bigger with each subsequent movie. So I'll go a three for industry. I'll go a four for an audience because I don't think it's a five, given that it had to take on multiple lives and it was kind of a slow building hit. But I do think that the audience is there. I go for a seven overall. Yeah, I think I'm going to I'm gonna probably get into the same kind of area that you're at with this, Tom, uh, because I think the next evolution of Hollywood – action movie you know whoever the successor to john wick is again going back kind of that that 60s 80s oddies 2020s kind of thing and again granted this is the release in 2014 but like the evolution of this particular thing for the industry i really think them having to see this as a slow burn i think that is very influential to say like oh man the industry right now is so concerned with cranking out content especially like the mcu and you know even the dcu to it to us you know a, a certain extent but i think the the ability for the for the industry to see that you know what you don't have to have this entire expanded universe with 12 movies a year and things like that you can you can slow roll it and still make decent money and still have a popular film franchise you can go to any i think a, uh, you know young to middle-aged adult man in america and say hey you seen john wick and yeah man i totally have so I think that, you know, without getting into other categories there, but I think for the industry that this is far more impactful. And I think I'm going to get awarded a four there. But I do agree with you, Tom, on the the audience front because it is sort of maybe lost amongst those other movies that are out there that it probably doesn't punch as hard. And I think I'm going to go with a solid three there as, as well. Three-year overall score or? I'm sorry, uh, seven combined. Okay. So four, four for the industry and three for the audience. audience. Yeah. Yes, thank okay. you. Dad? Industry, this was perceived as being a lesser film by a lot of the critics. It was given positive reviews as being fun and positive. So I went with a 3.5 for the industry. And the public, again, it was a slow burn. It's built well. It started producing. I have to give it points for the fact that it produced four five times its budget, but it wasn't part of the culture per se. 
So I'm going with a 3.5 for the public as well. So I'm going a 7 overall. So that's a very easy math 7 average for me. You sure you got that? (laughs) I'm pretty positive. Okay. Novelty. Because this feels like a retread in the genre, even though it's combining a lot of things, I don't think it's really reinventing the wheel of the action movie. In fact, it does a lot of the cliches of an action movie. It's just combining a lot of these classic action movie motifs into one thing and then executing it very well. And I've always said that even though things may be retread because they seem either fresh or it's a new combination of things or if it's executed very well, and I think that's partly why this movie ended up having a slow build, it's going to end up resonating with the public. And so some of that has to take into effect or I have to take that into factoring uh, a score. I'm going to go 7.5 on this one. Rob, or you or me? Uh, I, I was going to let you you take this one, tackle this one first. I'm going to draw a comparison. This is James Bond on steroids. The, the, the secret agent, the secret assassin, whatever. Except that James Bond only had calculated death. This is just mayhem. It's just he's going to just wipe everybody out to get what he wants. So it's not that novel, but the extent by which the mayhem exists is. So I went with a 6.5 because I don't think it's as novel, except that it gets novelty bumped by just the sheer badass aspect of the main character. I mean, he's just going beyond what any other film has done, just wiping everything out around him. I think I can get on board with that, Dana, a a lot, because it's... I'm going to go a little higher than I probably should on this, but I think I'm going to go with an 8 overall on this, and here's why. Tom, you mentioned, you know, that there are a lot of tropes in this. There are a lot, you know, there's a lot of common ingredients with long-time held, you know, hey, this is what an action movie contains. And I think that even when you, when you assemble them really well, when you assemble them really well, that can elevate things beyond the sum of the parts. It's like me making a cake and Gordon Ramsay making a cake. Gordon Ramsay, given the same set of ingredients, will bake a vastly superior to cake than I will. And I really think that's kind of the case here with John Wick, is that the sum of the parts is far greater than the 10 tropes that were combined into this movie. Uh, And I think that because they are so well executed by masterful directing and storytelling and things like that, that this this punches higher than its weight class because of the artistry that's involved in constructing this movie as an action movie filled with all the things you expect it to, but also kind of cranked to 11 a little bit, as you mentioned, Dana, of, you know, man, he's just wiping out whole squads of these, these dudes. And he's not doing it because he's got bigger guns or vehicles or anything like that. He's doing it with a pistol. And I think that when you combine that with putting things together in a truly skillful way, it it punches above its weight class. So that's a 7.33 average between the three of us. Classicness. I'll hand it over to you, Pop. (sighs) This is where I struggled with a lot. And it's simply because having gone through a period of time when we've seen police brutality and just 
nonsensical homicide of victims and such, it just strikes a chord with me sometimes that just the sheer brutality and the cavalier aspect of death and shootings, I had to give it a point down because back in 2014, when this wasn't as prevalent, maybe you kind of give it a pass, but it just comes far too close to home when we're talking about abuse of people and just the homicidal aspect of gunplay and how people are. It's just me. I went with a 6.5 on classicness because... So did you take off a half point or a full point? Huh? You said you took off a point. That would put you at a 6. Well, I, I... I went with a half point, I guess, for I'm at 6.5. I think I'll jump on that with you, with you too, Dana. I think that this movie actually, one of the things that it suffers from is, and maybe this is where I make up the last category of over, you know, kind of over uh, going here, maybe going a little under, is that depending on society's attitude towards this movie in the future, you know, 20 years from now, and I'm not going to say we're going to wind up in like Demolition Man style society or anything like that, where, you know, I get charged by the time, you know, I have to put money in the virtual swear jar or things like that. But the more the world is connected with cameras and phones and things like that, the more we see this violence perpetrated against people by people in positions of power and things like that. And so I think that while it may be a classic movie for somebody from my generation, I think that you, if you look at generation Z and generation alpha, this may be one that they take a pass on because the way that our society has evolved to, or is trending towards is that right now, you know, there is, there are folks in Washington, D.C. who are looking to put an assault weapons ban in place and things like that. And that changes how society perceives firearms. So I think that for millennials, I think this will remain a classic, but I think for people who are outside of that main demo, I think, and maybe Gen Xers too, but I think that for the younger demographics, I really don't think that this is going to be a bunch of a classic for them. So I will put out a uh, six on this marked down heavily uh, because I don't think that it has necessarily has staying power. I mentioned earlier, I might show this to my grandkids, you know, or something like that 40 years from now. I don't know if they'll like it. I'll still love it. I'll still really enjoy it. But, you know, I might just be, oh, grandpa loves his crazy gun movies, you know, but like, I think that there's a real possibility that this movie may have staying powers franchise, but I don't think past a certain point it does. There's a certain aspect of this is kind of like boxing. Yes. Sensibilities have changed to some extent as to when I was a kid, boxing was huge and I used to love boxing and I knew all the winner or the, the heavyweights, the middleweights, all that. I don't know that anymore because perception of what boxing does and is has changed. Well, it's very similar to football. You know, I think that that's kind of the modern day version of it too, is that people are getting traumatic brain injuries from smashing into each other on Sunday every day in America, you know? Yeah. I'm going to go in the opposite direction of both of you. Really? Oh. If there is anything that the last 10 years has taught me, America loves violence. And some of the few things that age well over time in Hollywood are action movies. The action hero King has been passed from everybody going back to about 1939 when John Wayne stepped up and was on stagecoach. 
to then passing it somewhat during that kind of period of the uh, late to late fifties, early sixties to kind of Charlton Heston, then passing that to Steve McQueen. Then Steve McQueen eventually passes it off to, I'm not even sure, but eventually you get to Stallone and Stallone and Schwarzenegger kind of battle back and forth for a little bit and so on and so forth until we basically have the action hero Kings of today. I think that there's a reason that America loves Die Hard still as much as they used to, still loves John Wayne Westerns, and my grandfather will sit and watch an entire marathon of John Wayne Westerns. It's not because John Wayne's overly funny, because John Wayne is a representation of what they would love the American manly man to be. And so while John Wick is a overemphasized version of what you'd like, America loves antiheroes, they love violence, and they can't get enough of it. The NFL churns along week after week. We almost had a guy die on the field less than six weeks ago. And with the exception that that game was canceled, none of the rest of the games were going to be canceled. The NFL moved heaven and hell to make sure that they had a situation where they didn't feel like they were being insensitive but could continue on making the money because it doesn't matter if you have a spinal cord injury or a concussion or whatever else Fox or CBS or whichever network is going to play their little injury music melody. They're going to cut to commercial break and two minutes later, we're going to be back to the action and we're going to let 300 pound guys sumo wrestle each other while a bunch of guys that can run four five forties try and run up and down a field. <laughs> And boxing has not declined because of the violence. It's because we could easily see what the violence could become. We saw the after effects. That and just their terrible marketing and organization of the sport. So it never pitted the two guys we needed to actually see fight each other. They just danced around it for five years until it was way too late anyway. I.e. Mayweather Pacquiao. Yeah, I still regret paying for that. I know, I do too. Anyway... I think that this movie will age well as a time period piece of the action genre because that has held up. It doesn't age really that poorly. You can look at First Blood. You can look at Die Hard. You can look at uh, The Magnificent Seven that you mentioned before. You can look at Bullet. Any of these just action hero genre movies and they still hold up. The only thing this movie has going against it right now is it hasn't had enough separation and time to really get the timelessness score that I would have on it. I went for an 8. So that's a 6.83 average between the three of us. Rewatchability, Rob, this is your favorite. 10? Yeah, I I really have to because, again, this is my favorite movie. The wife loves it too, which is kind of funny. So I'm not sure why. But she she and I watched this thing probably, I mean, there was a point where we were watching it every couple of weeks. I mean, like, really, I think 20, 2020, you know, pandemic, you know, just bunker down in the basement, man. Hey, John's on again. It's it's fantastic. I, I think that there's, it's a very good, to me, it's kind of a good, like, drinks and snacks kind of movie. Because once you've seen it the first time, obviously, you know the story. And that goes for any movie. But at the same time, I think some of the, uh, to, to give a... Kind of a, uh, you know, kind of steal a video game term like the glory kills. You know, he snaps the guy's neck over the counter and stuff like that. 
that still punches really hard when you are seeing it for the 13th time because it's just like oh that's just just awful but uh and again i think there's enough humor in the movie too that the jokes i i don't think get that old which is great so again i'm, I'm gonna go with a 10 on this because again that's again a little bit of bias but i i find this tremendously rewatchable i have a 6.5 it's a film that i'll watch once in a while if i see it on i'll watch it again because it is kind of fun to watch I'm not going to go out of my way to watch again, simply because, I don't know, I, I, I guess to some extent I've I've seen enough and been involved in enough violence that it kind of still does bother me a bit, just the sheer, <laughs> the fact that it's just like, eh, well, I'll just blow you away or put a bullet in your head and the blood spurts and, okay, I guess that's why I've marked it down. All right. For me, this is fun. I enjoy the movie. I can understand and have the separation that it is a movie and that you don't have to necessarily buy into the violence. I think that's a release everybody can have. I have no chance of being a Marvel superhero or a Jedi, but I can still enjoy those films because they take me to a place I would never uh, ordinarily go. And I don't think that there's a group of assassins universe where you could just mow down an entire like Russian outfit in New York and it not show up with the national guard the next day. So (laughs) this is true movie bullshit, but it's still fun in the process because Keanu can be a badass and he can just mow through guys and it's what you want from an assassin film. I mean, to a certain degree, it's kind of the hyper-realized version of what I wish at times the Assassin's Creed games would be, even though I love playing those, where you could just mow through 60 guys in about five or six minutes. But we'll get to that for another time. I have an 8.5 on this one. So that'll be an 8.33 average between the three of us. We had a 90% for Google users and an 81% for Rotten Tomato users for audience score, giving us a final total or final average of 8.55. So to recap the categories, we had an 8.17 for Legacy, a 7 for Impact Significance, 7.33 for Novelty, 6.83 for Classicness, 8.33 for rewatchability, and an 8.55 for audience score, giving us a final total of 46.21, and placing it on our list between Caddyshack and The Great Dictator. I was going to say, not bad company around there. No. For us to discuss your movie, unless you're like in the way dregs at the way bottom, like Victory and The Help and The Greatest Show on Earth, you're probably a pretty good film. And you're going to be among some of the greats. That's fair. Like, right sandwiched around there. It would be currently Elf, Iron Man, Caddyshack, John Wick, The Great Dictator, The Great Escape, Rio Bravo. It's in great company, even low down the list like that. That's, uh, That's great. So remaining questions then. One that I didn't put down in the previous show notes, but occurred to me while we were doing the episode. And it might unravel the entire film. How the hell does Iosef not know who the fuck John was? If he basically establishes the Russian presence in New York, 
and he was a major associate of theirs. Wouldn't there be kind of like a ha ha it's uncle John type vibe to this whole thing? No, I don't think so. I think Yosef is so rich kid and probably was overseas. He doesn't care where his dad's money come from, comes from. He's a rich idiot. He also had been out for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Five. I mean, he wasn't Five. That, yeah. And he wasn't that old. Right. Yosef was what? Four, maybe 14. At the, or at, if at the time John first left, you know, he was, you know, in his early te- late teens, very early twenties. He's not paying attention to what's going on with his dad. My next one is the reason John goes back to being a hitman because it's secretly the only true love or passion that he has left in his life. He really must savagely love to just mow people down in order for it just not to matter. It's either a matter of this is his only passion and the only thing he knows that he's truly great at and the only thing he has left, or he has nothing to lose, so why not use the only true skill he's ever had? I think that was fairly easily answerable as well, and I think you just have to look at military veterans. I think you have to look at people who served, whether it was Desert Storm or the Iraq War or Afghanistan or anything like that. You look at those those guys, and a lot of times readjusting civilian life is very, very difficult for them. Even if they're not combat veterans, they've come from a highly regimented, strong culture of any of the five branches of the U.S. military, and then they're releasing this thing that has, you know, society that has, you know, you have to build your own culture. Maybe they go work at a company that doesn't have a great culture. And I think John is very much thrust into a situation where he is seeking to get back to that, that like cultural comfy place for him, which unfortunately involves mowing down a whole bunch of people and being an assassin. But you know, you, you hear about these guys who do two, three, two, two, three, four tours in Iraq and they go out and they, now they're fighting in Ukraine or, and, or they're fighting somewhere else there. They become a mercenary. And I think that there's a lot of overlap with what happened to John Wick after he got out and all of the strings that held him above that cesspit that he used to live in have been cut and he's plunged back into it. And the one that bothers me the most, why does Vigo call John to tell him that he's killed Marcus? He could have just walked away been living, gotten away, gone to a completely different location, maybe gone on the continental ground, something like that. And instead he aggravates him intentionally. I mean, he already gave up his son. So what does he stand to gain by telling him about Marcus? I think he wants to hurt him. I think more than anything, he's trying to hurt John more. And, you know, I, we don't know what Vigo's background is. We know that Vigo's a mafia boss. And you don't get there by not being at least a skilled talker and a skilled, you know, person who knows how to play games in the underworld. Unless maybe your name is Avi and you've never held a gun before and you're an underboss. But <laughs> I think Vigo thought he could take him. Back to that story and I back to that story about, you know, the old man or you know Ricardo saying to his son, I have the first minute. I think that Vigo thought he might be able to get the drop on him, especially because he has cannon fodder to throw in front of John. You know, he has extra bodies from his organization to to sort of tar pit John into killing somebody else while he lines up a shot. And part of that is is taunting him with Marcus's death. Kind of make him see red. See, I don't I'm not sure I buy into that narrative because everything he's been doing up to that point is saying 
John's going to kill you, and it's not going to matter how many guys that you have in front of him. He's just going to mow right through them, even to the point where he saved his own skin by sacrificing his son. But then he gets so pissed off because one guy chose to look out for John. I mean, he could he could have a tremendous amount of hubris. He could be very high on himself. I mean, you're at the top of an organization full of yes people? Come on. I mean, it's entirely possible that Vigo thought he was better than John. Whether or not that's true, which it wasn't. <laughs> Either of you have any remaining questions? No, nah, other than... I w- maybe it's not a question, it's a statement. I wish they wouldn't have made sequels. Because <laughs> I don't care for them. I would love that very much in the same way I think Pirates of the Caribbean should have been left alone. It's one shot. Give me a great story that I can watch a hundred times and just leave me wanting more. Don't stamp out more because every everyone that you stamp, and this happens all the time in Hollywood, is inferior to the last. It's like wearing out a mold for, you know, pouring... Uh, cast iron or whatever. It's like wearing out a mold. Yes, except for Caddyshack 2, which is Caddyshack 2 is an abysmal, abysmal failure. It is the worst thing I've ever seen as far as a sequel. Everything Caddyshack was Caddyshack 2 is the antithesis. Uh, I haven't seen it, but uh, again, but I think my point still stands that occasionally a sequel can surpass the source or the original material, you know, Terminator 2 or, you know, Last Crusade, things like that. So I'll let Rob have the last word on that for the evening then. Thank you very much again for joining us for your fifth time and becoming a member of the elite five-timers club on the show. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. I can't wait to wear the living daylights out of that hat. Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll have to get back to you because it's one of the great own goals of this show. As much as he's bragged about everybody trying to be a part of the Five Timers Club and all the guests he's tried to advertise, come on and get your hat, show up to the show five times, and then nothing. You get to that point and he's just the, the execution pop. <laughs> well, I, I, I wish I had... Uh unlimited time don't we all don't we all <laughs> but anyway rob again thank you for being on it any place has. that uh you'd like to plug or anything that you've been working on places people can find you yeah i mean the biggest thing that i'm in in right now is linkedin i've become a content creator myself over the past year you know i'm growing my own podcast agency which is a lot of fun we specialize in business to business uh, shows which are completely different than what we did tonight. So that's why I was always really loved doing this because you guys pulled me out of the, you know, we have to have an ROI, we have to do all this stuff uh, and put me into the fun side of podcasting. That doesn't mean business to business ones can't be fun. But uh, yeah, if anybody's interested, you know, look me up on LinkedIn, Rob Conlon and uh, Westport Studios is my, uh, my business. But uh, we've been doing some really fun stuff with helping people how to, uh, you know, sort of answer the questions that they they have about starting their own show, whether it is, you know, something that I can help them with, or it's something that the, you, they want to do as a passion project, much like here on the greatest movie of all time. Remaining thoughts for the week, dad. No, just, uh, working through, uh, the various films. I, I will recommend Mrs. Harris goes to Paris. Is that a question? 
<laughs> Mrs. Harris goes to Paris. It was nominated for uh, best or for uh, an Oscar nomination for costume. It's a cute little film. If you just want to sit and have a a, a good evening of enjoyment, uh, kind of lifts your spirits. Um, nothing significant. Nothing you know. You just want some entertainment for a night. It's a good film to watch. It was a very small, quiet film that would appeal to the 50-year-old women in your life, which is exactly why I put it on for my mother. Nice. But I enjoyed it. I mean... That was collateral damage. Ah, well, okay. Anyway, as far as recommendations for me, I'm trying to think of anything that I've really seen lately that's worth even the shout-out. I mean, I already talked about shrinking last week. I'm still lit on Poker Face on Peacock. I know a lot of the critics have really loved it, but I just, I'm still a little bit torn on whether I like the show or not. The only other one, and it was, I think, a show that ranked inside my top 10 of last year, the first season. The second season has already come out, and it's given us a few drops of some stuff that came out on the original show. It's the spinoff, much later version of How I Met Your Mother and How I Met Your Father that we have currently going on now. I enjoy the show, if only for recreating the tone of what I liked from the original show while giving me some new characters that I can really kind of dig into and enjoy. And just enough callbacks to tease the original show fans that I think it does a a good job of blending the new with the old and uh, recreating a tone that I could live inside that universe and everything eventually works out for everybody in the show, which... Gosh darn it, I wish I could get in real life, but it seemingly never happens. So that'll do it for us this week. Thank you for listening. I did not hit her. It's not true. It's bullshit. I did not hit her. I did not. Oh, hi, Mark. Next week, we are discussing the best worst movie ever made, The Room from 2003, written, directed, and starring Tommy Wiseau and co-written and starring Greg Sestero. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in in our fun. You can also email the show at thenewronnieduncanstudios.com or sign up for our newsletter, find our Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast, or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or now TikTok at the handle at Podcast. Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM.